special welcome. If you're new here today, great to have you with us. We've been uh, walking our way through the Sermon on the Mount, started about a month ago. And that's where we want to pick up here again this morning. And let's begin by just reading from Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. If you want to use your Bibles, it would be wonderful, but I have it on the screen as well. Look how it reads here. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. The city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I don't know if we realize it, but there's a bit of a paradox in terms of being a follower of Christ. and Because on one side we realize that we are no different than anybody else in this world. When you think of how everybody is created by God, they're made in the image of God, all of us have a deep desire to be loved. There's a desire for us to have significance in our lives. And we're all born with this attitude as we come out of the womb, and there's this idea of we like our independence, And we kind of want to subtly shake our fist at God and say, God, I'm not going to bow before you. But the other side of it, the the paradox of, of being a follower of Christ, if that's how you view your life, it's just that when once we become a daughter and a son of the king, there is a difference that is profound. We've been given a new spirit. And with that, there's new desires that are put into our soul that says, love God, obey God. And then there's freedom as well. When we're a child of the king, we can love, we can worship, we can serve the king. So you recognize those two ends of the spectrum are really miles apart. Now here's where we need to connect it to the Sermon on the Mount recognized that this was the early days of Jesus' ministry. And and it was one where people were gathering, he was developing a reputation, so there were all kinds of people that were following him around, looking, some actually wanting something from him. He began to heal people, and so there was sick people coming to him saying, Jesus, heal me. And I'm guessing that there would have been the curious people, the religious people. So in that crowd on the Sermon on the Mount, there would have been a a spattering of all different places where people are at spiritually. But here's the tension that we have. In this Sermon on the Mount, for the most part, it is very pointed and it is directed at the disciples of Christ. It's really one who has faith, the one who is has already said, God, I'm going to follow you. And Jesus is, is pointing this at the people who know him, who've believed in him, and have followed, even followed his father, Yahweh. And it makes a difference in the text today. 
Matter of fact, let me jump into the application right off the bat to get there. If you're following along, we have the notes in the sermon or in the bulletin there. You can follow and fill in the blank if you want to do that. But for number one, I said it this way. As a disciple of Christ, you are salt. And you are light. Look at Matthew 13, how it's stated there. You are You are the light of the world. See, when he phrases it in this way, it says this. This isn't a nice idea. This isn't an optional thing. He states it emphatically. You are salt. You are light. And my guess is that the disciples of Jesus would have been close to him on that mountain and he would have looked in the eyes and he would have said, Matthew, you are salt. Peter, you are light. But we begin with this issue of salt. What does this mean as we apply it to 2014? Now now understand this, the culture back then had... they. Salt was far more important for them. Um, I made some oatmeal t- this morning for us, and I, you know, put a little in, and kind of measured out my palm and put it in the water for the oatmeal. And, and you kind of think nothing of it, but for them, recognize that salt was so much more valuable than than I think it is for us. Matter of fact, scholars would say there was eleven different purposes that salt was in different ways was used. And, and it was a fertilizer. I don't go through all of them, but antiseptic. It was a fire catalyst. There was all different kinds of ways that, that, that salt was used and understood in their culture. But then you go, okay, what was Jesus referring to when he was speaking to those men? And I think it's this, is that word has to do with flavoring. Now, there, there's a lot of people who lean toward an antiseptic and kind of preservative. I, I'm not convinced of it here, in, in part because in Luke chapter 14, Jesus actually connects salt with flavoring in that passage. But when you think of salt as a flavor, uh, it's a unique spice. Matter of fact, I googled it and said, okay, why do you put salt in a food? And, and here's one of the things that came up. It's from a, a cooking or school a, 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 for, for food. It says this, A lot of people think that if you season meat, it takes the moisture out, explains Wignall. But salt actually affects the protein cells' walls. It makes them bigger so that you actually absorb more liquid. Salt changes the nature of meat and food. But understand this, how does then salt apply to us? What does it mean to flavor for us that know Christ? If we are salt, what does it mean? And I think it's this, is that it flavors our environment. The settings that we're involved with, it can flavor them in a, in a very positive direction. And, and let me give you the application, because understand Jesus just got done talking about the Beatitudes. And look at number two in, in terms of where we're at here. And it says this, we change the flavor of our environment by living out the Beatitudes. See, this is about living in front of people. 
To say it different, we become influencers. Blessed are the merciful. Now, just think in a setting. If there was no mercy, and you put somebody in, all of a sudden where mercy flows from a person, it changes the dynamics of an environment. Blessed are the meek. We talked about meek being a person willing to to lay the sword on the ground when conflict comes along. And, And Jesus did that. And all of a sudden, when we don't rev up the conflict, it changes the setting of what's happening. See, it salt changes the tone of the setting. And when the Holy Spirit is working in us, one can't but help influence the people in any given setting. Uh, settings can be work, family gatherings, marriages, churches. Um, Deanna and I lived in Vancouver, Washington, across from Portland, Oregon, years and years and years ago. And one of the things that the church that we attended out there, it had a large college ministry, so it attracted college students from Multnomah Bible College. And we had the opportunity to hear and get to know some of the professors of that college. And so lots of occasions they'd come over and be the substitute pastor for the day, and they'd put on conferences for us. And I remember one time a professor came over, his name was David Needham, and man, this guy was old. He's about 55 years old or so. And, uh, but he came to the church to speak. And, and Deanna and I, just we listened to the conference, and it was like, wow, this guy knows God. Matter of fact, because we worked at the college ministry, a number of students told us about David Needham, and my son actually had him in a class. Um, but David Needham would come into his class over at the college and he'd, he'd stop and he'd begin to pray and he'd pray quite, it would, he'd take a little while to pray. And, and then he would kind of look up and say, oh, class, you're here. There was a sense where you just go, this guy is talking to God. But he, he, he influenced the settings that, we, that he was in. Uh, he, he wrote a book called Birthright. It's one of my top five books that's influenced me about spiritual identity being in Christ. But think of a Billy Graham. He was a man over the years who could walk into any president's office and a group of men would be sitting there and you knew he flavored the room. His love for God oozed out and it made a difference in the setting that he was a part of. What's our influence? And the question, what if these beatitudes for us that we just got done going through, what if they really became a way of life for us? And and we show up at a family gathering, and it just influences people. Yeah, it might be the words that we speak. It might be just the attitude of the heart. It might be the passion that one exudes for Christ. And it just kind of flows out there. And wouldn't we want a reputation that says this, this man loves or this woman loves God fully? See, salt is supposed to flavor the settings that we're in. But let me give you another observation for salt here. Number three, salty disciples influence without needing glory. 
Now here's where I think there's a trap when it comes to influence. We keep thinking that it's about being kind of the top of the heap, the leader, the, the one who everybody's looking at. And I go, no, not at all. Matter of fact, is anybody, anybody here use salt on watermelon or maybe tomatoes? Yeah, a bunch of you, you, you do that. Have you had any person ever say this? They take, they take the piece of watermelon, they put some salt on it, and they take a bite and they go, oh, what wonderful salt. <laughs> and you go, no. See, what, what does salt do? It enhances the flavor of the substance, the food. See, the job of salt is not to make you think how great salt is. Or how great the salted food is. So when we influence the culture, we can do it without needing to draw attention to ourselves. It's about humility. This, this picture I've been giving you, of it's about opening our hands and saying, okay, God, just use me in subtle ways. Lord, just take my life and use it. But I do think that there's a challenge And look at the challenge in 5.13 here on the screen. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. What's Jesus saying? He's saying this, is that there's a way to live that actually diminishes our influence. And I just can't help but wonder if that's really what's going on with the church in the United States, we're actually losing our influence in the day. Now, here's where I think some people would go when they they hear that and losing influence. And I think what people do is they point right away, you know what, it's because of the morals of the Christians and where they're at today. They're no different than the world. And they point to a morality issue in, in some of the areas. I, I think it's gray, but I'll give you an example. Growing up, uh, I grew up in an era where my mom and dad were very conservative. And um, for the first probably eight, nine, ten years of my life, we couldn't go to a bowling alley because we're supposed to be salt and light. And the reason you don't go to a bowling alley is because somebody might be drinking beer there. Anybody grew up in that environment a little bit? You understand what they believed at that point. But the, the, the challenge is if you only stay, well, let me go farther. See, I think it's more than just morals. So, so let me give you a couple of thoughts in what I think the reasons why we've lost our saltiness. The first one on the notes, I said it this way it's just the inability to live in the world and not be of the world. And this is a hard one to figure out. I understand that. It's not simple. But what I think we've done is we've, we've created an environment, a culture, where we actually build walls around the lives of Christians. And then we build these walls and then we think of the gospel. It's let's just throw the gospel over the wall and hope it knocks over somebody. And so what we subtly do is we work hard to keep lost people away from us. 
I've worked over the years a lot with college and young career, and I hear when kids grow up and they leave the home, and I've heard too many times this statement, oh, I hope my son or my daughter, I just hope they get work at a good Christian company. But do you know what that says? Do you understand the dilemma there? Is they're telling their, their kids to avoid the lost. Don't, another one. You know, we should only support Christian businesses. See, it communicates something that's really wrong and anti what this verse is saying. Avoid the lost, those people that need Christ. Don't worry about being salty. And so what we do is we pull away and we form our Christian clubs and leagues so we don't have to play with lost people. Why? Because they have bad language. You're removing the salt. I was talking to someone in between the services and I have a daughter who's a teacher in California in the public schools. And people kind of, to her and to us, they said, ooh, she, she's working in the public schools in California? <laughs> but let me tell you, where else would those sixth graders come in contact with another believer? They wouldn't. See, that's the challenge, is we are called to be salt. And when you think of we are called to be missionaries, and even teaching our kids, we need to communicate and teach our children to become missionaries. And parents, this starts at second, third grade. And we as parents have to live our lives as missionaries in this world. And staying away from the world flies in the face of what Jesus is implying in this text today. So when we pull away from public education or politics or media, you go, who's going to flavor it? And, and I, in some of these settings, if we don't go into those settings, there will be no other place that they will hear the gospel or bump into lives of the opportunity to develop a relationship. But let me go even farther here. There's an interesting translation issue here in verse 13. If you have the New American, I think it's tasteless. The salt becomes tasteless. It's lost its taste. <clears throat> now, technically, <clears throat> if it's pure salt, you can't lose its effectiveness. Okay. Uh, now, they suspect back then that there was lots of minerals and other substances with their salt back then. But I, I think there's another way to view it, and I discovered this in my study this week. That word lost its taste or tasteless. Let me put it on the screen. It's there. Moraine. It means to become foolish. It's where the word moron comes from. Okay? But it's, I think this, it's likely here that Jesus is actually using a pun to suggest that if you as disciples lose your saltiness, you've become fools. And the idea of being thrown out is not about salvation at all. It's about losing influence for the kingdom and how foolish that is. So let me give you a second a foolish belief, a moraine belief. I said it this way, Christians have adopted the moraine belief that we can influence others without developing caring relationships. 
You know what, let's just drive along the road and the, the, the one who's along the side of the road with the tire, let's just throw a tract out the window and see if they'll pick it up. Okay, it doesn't work. So what we do too often is we huddle up in our families and we occasionally talk to people who are lost and we feel good about that. And then we create Christian events and we feel good because just a few people actually show up. Folks, we live in a world, it's a changing world, where people are rarely hearing the gospel. The competition for radio stations, all of those things, I think we point to the exceptions all the time. And folks, it needs to be more than the exceptions. Luke 19.10, I don't have it on the screen, Jesus said, for the Son of Man came to seek. One of the reasons, came to seek and save the lost Are we concerned about the lost? Now, I'm going to stop here on the issue of salt, but we could go into some of the other analogies, but let's just dig farther in verse 14. Look at how it reads here in this light analogy. 14 again, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now let me put a statement on the screen here. Look at this. Many Christians get disturbed because we live in a dark world. Just ponder that for a moment. You know what my response is? Hello? (laughs) We live in a dark world. When Jesus came, it was a dark world, as dark as it was even now for us. Just read some Roman history. I had a history major, and we had to read some of it. It was going, yuck. It was similar for today. It's just the way it is. But let me give you an application here where I think we got to go down, and it fits here with the previous point. Number four, it is not enough to have a private relationship with Christ. Man, I, I, as a church individual, we want this, it's Jesus and me, Jesus and me. You go, no. Our relationship must become public, inviting people in their lives even to hold us accountable for being salt and being light. You know, we sing this. Remember the song, This Little Light of Mine, I'm going to let it shine inside a house, but go into the world? Do we sing that? Or do we stay in the house and pull the shades down and don't let any lost people see us? See, when a city, have you ever come to a place where a city's actually been on a hill and you come in at night? It's attractive. You want to go with all these bright lights out, and you go, I wonder what's there. See, that's what God is calling us to, to be in the world, to be lights of the world, and not just sit back in our homes and have a private faith with our families. Let me give you another one, number five. Light is about reflecting Jesus. And Jesus said this, I am the light of the world. And you recognize that when we have this spiritual union with Christ, that God is pouring the Holy Spirit, is giving us a light 
because of our union with Christ, and it can flow out into the culture, and Jesus is shining through us. About a week ago, I don't know if you caught it at night, uh, the moon was full, and it was actually one, I don't remember the term it was, but it was the closest that it can actually be to the earth. So the ball, it was huge. And in the darkness, I was driving one night, and it was like lighting up the whole side, the whole countryside. But we are called to be a light like that moon. The sun bounces its light to the moon, and then it comes to earth. That's us. Are we the light? Technically, maybe not, because it's Christ is the light. Now, here's where I think some people want to come back, and they kind of, yeah, but can. Um, you know, I think we'll just have good morals, and that'll be the light. We'll just make sure that we don't cheat on our taxes and do all those kinds of things. And here's, the, I think, the problem with that view. I just find that there's many people in the world that are in the dark, and they've got better morals than Christians times. See, being good from a morality perspective, it's not enough. See, reflecting Christ is about spending time with him, a union with him, and it changes us from the inside out. And it changes in such a way that we begin to actually love like Jesus that we begin to relate to sinners like Jesus. And and yes, some are offended by us, but those that are being saved are going to be attracted to us. We begin to teach our children to reflect Christ. See, the Holy Spirit begins to pour his love into us, and then he gives us his attributes, and, and we begin to adopt the beatitudes of being meek and poor in spirit. And even when we're persecuted and reviled, we don't have to revile back. We give mercy and we give grace. See, we grow and we want to talk about Jesus. We want to weep and see the lost like Jesus. And and matter of fact, I think it's even this. We begin to be used to heal like Jesus. I'm not talking about physical healing necessarily. I'm talking about spiritual healing in other people's lives. We become reflections of who is the light. It's Christ. Jesus is the light, and we reflect him. But let me give you the last point for this morning. Number six. The church's mission is to display to the world who God is. Matthew 5.16 again. Look at at how it goes. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I'm not convinced that, that the good works was the display is to other disciples. I believe it's to the world. And since we are light, we are called to shine before others. And it includes actions. But it leads them to go, God, his glory. See, it points to the church's mission in this world to display to the world who God is. Do we realize that the church exists for this world to be light? 
and to be salt. And yet we keep trying to go, let's just pull back from the world. You see the tension? How do we live in this world and not be of in this world? We need to become like Jesus. Now, how does this apply to our body as a body of believers? And it's this, we are a lighthouse before others. And is the gathering together important? Yes. But it's not the only aspect of a church. We are called to penetrate the world and be missionaries in the world that God puts in front of us. Bovee and Coleraine and Grand Rapids and Deer River and every town around us. What does it mean for us practically in our families? Is that our neighbors, do they, can they view your home as a lighthouse? Where we've started last year wanting to begin, continue to be build on the community group concept. And that community group concept is built so that you actually can invite the world into that group. It's not just a closed group for Christians. See, we want to bless the world. We want to live in a neighborhood and bless our neighbors. See, the lost needs to know us. They may see that we're doing something different. We need to come in contact with the world. For me, you know, I have an apartment over in Coleraine, and there's lots of older people in that apartment. It's kind of an older group. But they all sit down, and they, I come in at 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock at night, and they're sitting there talking. I need to stop. I need to build relationships with them. You see, how do we do that? See, the lost needs to know us so that they can actually see our lives and what we're doing. We have to live it in front of them. People can't read our minds we can walk into a mall, but unless we get to know people, it doesn't do much. I do have to point this out, though. There's a bit of a contradiction, and I'll, we'll get to it down the line, but in Matthew 6 is actually this idea where he says, don't practice your righteousness before men. Well, how, do you, how does that fit here? Well, I really think it's this. What he's talking about is the motive there of, the, of your heart. So our motive needs to be as we live in front of people, it's for a kingdom purpose. It's for something greater than ourselves. But see, as we come to an end here, are we salt? Are we really light? Jesus says you are, you are. And if we're not, we're fools. So, so what needs to happen? I, I think this is where, for us, it, it has to go. We have to begin to go, what does it mean to encounter God? That he changes us and he's the one that's giving us the ability to shine. And, and there's an illustration in the Old Testament that I want to just close with that really demonstrates this. Remember Moses walked by faith leading the people out of Israel, goes into the, the desert and they sin and all of a sudden God's going to give him the Ten Commandments and, and you recognize the second time up to the mountain to redo it again, I want to pick it up in Exodus 34 because Moses 
discovers something even more here about God as he encounters God. Look how it reads in 34, verse 4. So Moses cut the two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning, and he went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took his hand two tablets of stone, and the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Now catch this. This phrase, pass you by, there's a revelation that Moses is 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 where it's taking place here, and he's encountering God. It's more than just the Ten Commandments. This is more than just the law. He encountered, there's this encounter that Moses had changed him in his understanding of who God is. And look what it says. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. You go, just ponder those aspects of who God is. We need to embrace those things. Now, shortly after this, he renews his covenant that he had made with Israel. But look at the verses, jump to 29. And when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of his testimony in his hand, and as he came down the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had seen, had been talking with God. He had spent time with God and something had changed. Aaron and all the people of Israel, Israel saw Moses and behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. See, I think this is when we truly encounter God, something is changed in our lives. And people begin to see us differently, just like Moses. But but see, for us, we want to know God, what he's like. How do we do that? Actually, Scripture tells us this. Look to the Son, to the Son of God. Because when you've seen Christ, you've seen the Father. You see God. And as we gaze at Christ, he actually makes us shine. Maybe not literal faces from being out in the sun, but it's a place where something is different. Something is different. And the question that I have for you is, as you look at your life right now, are you giving yourself those opportunities where you are encountering God, where he can change you, where he can change you in such a way that you are light, that the salt is highly influential? in the settings that you're at. But we need this communion and we need to gaze at Christ. That must happen in our lives. And when we gaze at him, he changes us and we shine. But let me just close with two other quickies here. This might be true. Some of you here, you're listening to me and you're going, what is he talking about? And it doesn't make sense for you about light and salt. And and here's where I would invite you is that I would love to talk with you and explain what it means even a little bit more. But there might be also others here who are stuck and you're not gazing at the sun. Matter of fact, there's a window on your soul 
And that window is really dirty. It's sooty. The sun can't come in and touch you and change you. And on that window, there might be unforgiveness or maybe stubbornness or pride or some other issues that are keeping you from gazing to the sun, from having that light shine in on your soul. I would implore you to pause and say, God, clean my window of my soul and change me that I would become a light, that I would be salt that would impact every setting that I'm in for your glory. I'm going to ask the elders to come forward. We want to remember that because of what Christ did on the cross, do we recognize that he died for us to make us salt and to make us light. And we want to praise him. And we just want to remember him. And guys, go ahead and take the the bread, the elements there. And we do practice open communion, so if you know Christ is your Lord and Savior, please participate with us. We do would ask, we'd ask that you would hold the elements so we can partake together. But we just want to remember what Christ did for us in making us salt and making us light.